Well, we come to John chapter 12. And we come into a passage of scripture that was very confrontational. We saw the last two weeks as Jesus Christ doesn't follow the mob, but challenges them as they were prepared to make him king. He then interjects the necessity of the suffering servant, a message they didn't want to hear, didn't like, and didn't sit well with them, seemed to be in conflict with the activity that they saw around them, (coughs) and they declared it such to them, that uh, this is not what we're looking for. Uh, We're looking for the Christ that remains forever. We are looking for that one that will be our deliverer. Christ simply means deliverer. And so... Uh, Christ has challenged them, and uh, again, John has given us uh, those four mechanisms in conjunction with the triumphal entry that the people weren't responsive to. They were not, and that's going to be very critical to the follow-up message of Jesus Christ drawn from Isaiah and John, drawn from Isaiah about what is transpiring and what will set the tone for the balance of the week that will culminate, not in Christ's death, that's what we might think, but it culminates in his resurrection, which necessitates his death on the cross, which he has already foretold. And that is that they have heard the voice from heaven, they have seen the signs, they know the whole the law, they have access to the scriptures, And they have Jesus Christ as the light of the world standing before them. They have every opportunity to respond. And tragically, we come down to verse 37. We conclude last week, and yet they did not believe in him. Not in the way he presented himself. They believed that they wanted a a deliverer politically but not spiritually. Sound familiar? It's, it's kind of has, unfortunately, represented too much of the Christian community in the last 20 to 30 years. Uh, and maybe even farther back than that, going all the way back to the moral majority and Jerry Falwell back in the 80s, 70s and 80s, late 70s and 80s. And we have looked for redemption not through, we look for deliverance not through a redeemer, but through a political personage or party or platform. And Jesus Christ here completely (laughs) undermines that. And the one that you want to put on a throne is about to be put on a cross. And they didn't believe, therefore, in him because they did not like that message. They did not understand what glory meant to them. That meant he was going to become king, and he quickly corrected them. And so we come now to verse 38 of John chapter 12, and I invite you to turn there, where we find Christ uh, and John really communicating why Christ did this. And here, why would they not believe? And we kind of interrupted a sentence because at the end of verse 37 it says they did not believe, and now we tell them why. Uh, Why is it? We know the facts of it, and we kind of see the exposure they had. Now, why? Why would they not believe? And we have a a struggle a little bit here uh, with tenses and uh, and some Old Testament passages. And so we want to read through it very carefully and study it. 
and uh, to understand the underlying motives of unbelief, no matter how much you're confronted with the truth. It says that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts, and turn, so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah said when he saw his glory and spoke of him, which is in Isaiah chapter 6. So John is giving his readers even the context of these past, of at least this secondary passage. Nevertheless, it says in verse 42, even among the rulers, many believed in him. And we're going to stop right there. So we are directed, first of all, to understand their necessity of Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ. That this was necessary fulfillment of prophecy. And, and he goes into Isaiah, and he's going to explain that. We're going to look at these passages here shortly. But I want you to understand the theological necessity of this. For if Israel, as a nation, had received the message of the voice they heard, had received an understanding fully of the law and the prophets, had fully responded to Jesus Christ in his personage right before their eyes, and had really contemplated and in, uh, uh, embraced uh, the... Uh, signs and wonders that they saw, including Lazarus walking about, uh, something horrible would have happened. And the horrible nature of that is that Christ would not have died and you would not have been included in the kingdom because you're not of Israel, not in terms of your physical lineage. Now, certainly you could become part of Israel, much like uh, Rahab and others that, that responded and wanted to follow the God of Israel and, and was willing to submit themselves under the law and become Israel. And, and Rahab is a one Gentile woman we, we know is there in the line of David and the line of Christ. Um, and so we can recognize that. But in, in the context of what we think of as the church that is thrown open the doors to the Gentiles directly, not through the law in Israel, but rather through the mediating power of the blood of Jesus Christ. That would have been lost. And so it was necessary that the Jews reject Jesus Christ. And the question is, does that necessity mean that they had no choice in this matter? And this is one of the problematic concepts that we come to when we look at the will of God, the nature of prophecy, and the authority of man in his will. And we do not deny that there is a tension here that is very obvious. But we, all, but we do deny any extreme view of this, that man has no choice in this matter, which is clearly not communicated in this passage, nor is it communicated in Isaiah, and and that, that whatever is to be is to be. And therefore, we, we cannot counter it, because that is not the case, ultimately here. And nor do we go to the other extreme, that God is somehow um, 
just uh, a visionary that sees the future and then records it. And that he had no influence or impact in what was going to transpire. And so those are the two extremes. And we are on neither of those and nor is God's word. I don't find that consistent with any of God's word, and I denounce both of those positions. So don't try to pigeonhole me there. You can easily, in the midst of this message, take a sentence out here and a sentence out there and say, he's over there. No, he's over there. And you can have a great argument about that. I was almost going to spread your chairs farther apart and have you face each other so you can... If you people think I'm over here or you people think I'm over here, just so you can see the nature of that. Um, but the fact is the biblical record is much more complex than these simplified extremes. And I want you to understand that they are simplified because they are fashioned to fit into man's reasoning. That automatically makes them simplified. We are called not to an irrational faith, and I've said this many times in this church, but to a super rational faith, that we are going to go to a divine level rather than keep muddling around in the human reasoning level. And this calls us into some very complex concepts that are very difficult to, to uh, balance, and they are not contradictory, but rather we have difficulty understanding necessarily how they function. But we want to investigate it this morning, and we want to do so very carefully. So, Jesus Christ has already declared, and in fact, the, the tone of, of his statements are, this is the hour. We're not talking about the distant future. To him, we're in the midst of the Passover week that will be his sacrifice, and he knows it. He knows that this is the time, and he knows when that time has to happen in accordance with the Paschal Lamb. So he has already laid this all out. He, is, he, he knows what's confronting him. He knows the gauntlet that, he, that is the crucifixion that is before him. Not only at Gethsemane at the garden prayer, but already here at the triumphal entry, he knows how this story ends. He knows what he is sent to do, and in this context, he knows when it's going to happen. This is my hour. We have seen him in prior engagements saying, this isn't the hour. This isn't the time. And he just walks away and disappears from people. And they can't find him. They can't get their hands on him. They surround him and he gets away because it wasn't his time. And so God does know the seasons and the times. And it would be very easy to say because he has a knowledge of those that is not just um, like a human knowledge of them. Well, I'm pretty, you know, that we're pretty sure this is what's going to happen. You, you have a knowledge of your week. You're pretty sure that you're going to go to work tomorrow. You're pretty sure that I'm going to get done preaching about a quarter to 12, and you're going to sing and leave here, and you're pretty sure you're going to have a meal. You have a knowledge of what the future is going to be kind of like for the week. But that is not what we're talking about when we talk about God's knowledge of the future. It is precise. So does that negate any aspect of my will in that knowledge? No. Because the fact is, while you are pretty sure that I'm going to get done preaching at a quarter to 12, that doesn't mean I will. And, it, and nor does your thinking that that should happen make it happen. 
there's a difference between a knowledge of it based upon experience or plans or whatever and causation. You're not causing me to get done preaching at Cortell because that's your expectation. Um, now, if all of you start stepping up and going like this to me, you might say, well, I have an influence there. And I would agree with you. That would influence me probably to preach longer because you need to repent. Okay? If you're doing this with your clock and you're looking at me, or, and, and then you need more preaching, not less. All right? You need to repent badly. And so <laughs> now you're like, I'm never going to look at the clock again. He's going to preach longer. But uh, we find that this is the knowledge of God. It's precise. It's not imprecise, but it doesn't equal causation. Simply because God knows doesn't mean God caused. Because as soon as you assign causation to God, now you assign responsibility to God. Because if he causes it, then no one is at fault but God. Was Jesus Christ sent to die? Yes. Does that put everyone off the hook in this narrative for screaming out, crucify him, crucify him? No. Because knowing and causing are two very different things. And so even though it was within the plan of God and it was necessary, all the things we're going to talk about here in Isaiah, it was even prophesied ahead of time, does not release man from the responsibility of being the agents of causing the plan of God. And again, there's tension there, isn't there? You're like, uh, and that's okay, because it's super rational. It is on divine thinking and is not going to settle well in your mind. And shame on any preacher that tries to set up a system that makes it just feel right to you. And, oh, I can understand that. As soon as you say that, you should go, hmm, I have to accept it, not understand it. But we're going to talk about understanding versus acceptance later on, um, but I get way ahead of myself. Um, Like three, four sermons ahead of myself at this point. So we're going to come into this with this understanding that it's beyond our understanding to some degree. But yet we need to accept it by faith that God has a plan. He has prophesied that plan. And so you're going to see certain statements in here that make it sound like these people had no choice. But it is very obvious from John that they did have a choice. They chose not to believe. And I want to introduce a little bit of a different concept to you of this, than the, and that's what we want to get into this morning, and it's going to be a little bit of a challenge. So hang with me. It might seem kind of high today, um, but I want you to press it. It's very important theologically you, that we get this. So they did not believe that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. So the prophet Isaiah comes in, and the first quotation that we find here is in Isaiah 53. Uh, If you want to turn there very quickly, uh, in Isaiah 53, and just keep your finger in Isaiah, because we're going to be, both of these quotations are from Isaiah. Um, The secondary one is the one we're going to really focus in on. And the quotation here in Isaiah 53 is the beginning of a passage 
that I've already referenced last week because they knew the law, but they rejected the prophets. They heard what they wanted to hear. Remember, they wanted a little light, not the sunlight. They didn't want the whole counsel of God. They didn't want the whole revelation. They only wanted to pick and choose the parts they liked. So Jesus Christ has, has taken them there, and, Paul, and John, the author here, is going to take us there to Isaiah 53. So Isaiah 53 is in the middle of, it's not really the introduction, it's the start of a chapter, but it's really in the midst of describing the suffering servant. Um, and just to give you an idea, let's read the last three verses of 52. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. Well, that kind of goes along with the triumphal entry, doesn't it? Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths at him for what they had not been told, for what had not been told them, they shall see. And what they shall not, had not heard, they shall consider. And so uh, Jesus Christ had just said, the Son of Man will be lifted up. And you read Isaiah 13, it says, well, that's about being extolled, being exalted, being lifted high. That's bringing glory. And again, these are not contradictory things. Remember, two weeks ago, do not think that suffering is contradictory to being exalted. Have you been counted worthy of suffering for his name? That's how the disciples took it when they got beat up for being Christians. I, wow, we got exalted today. Well, the world looks at it and says, you've been humiliated today. Paul and Silas in prison, why were they singing? They were beaten by lashes and thrown in prison for casting a spear out of a girl. And they're singing. Why? Because it, suffering was their exaltation. So when Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, will be lifted up, it's already referenced here. And we, the people said, well, you're talking about being crucified. How can you be crucified? Because they could not associate crucifixion with exaltation. This was a physical thing. I'm going to be lifted up. They didn't understand that you could be physically lifted up on a cross, naked and, and assigned with criminals, and be exalted before God simultaneously. But that's what the prophet has. How do we know that? Because it's not just that verse. It's the next verse says his image, his body, his visage, what we see of him is marred. He's torn to shreds. We cringe to look upon it. Kings shudder at it. And verse 53, one is an appropriate passage to, for John to quote in this context, isn't it? Who has believed our report? They had the voice from heaven. God exalted him. I will glorify myself and glorify it again. Glorify my name, glorify it again. They had that. They had the testimony there. They had all the law. They had Christ. They had the signs. They had all that, and they did not believe. Why? Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who believed this? 
And the implied answer is here, no one. Where are the people who believe this? Where are they? Why are they clamoring to come to Jesus Christ? No, they're going to make themselves, they're going to make themselves his enemy. God is not going to make them become his enemy. And we're going to see that in the next passage very clearly. So who has believed our report? That exaltation means suffering. And the whole rest of the passage of Isaiah 53, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground, there's no form or comeless that we should see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. He's despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne <laughs> our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, and the, and the chastisement for our peace was upon him, by his stripes we are healed. And we could go on through the, this chapter and, and see the whole nature of the suffering servant, that it was all there to care for our sin condition, to cover our iniquities. Now, who's responsible? For their unbelief. They are. You see, the beginning to really understand this aspect, this question that Isaiah asks Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There is the arm of the Lord. There is the working of God. God has a plan. That's the arm of the Lord. Has God revealed his plan? The answer is yes. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To whom has it been shown? It has been shown to all these people at the triumphal entry. They have seen it from the signs. They heard the voice. They had all these opportunities. They had it revealed to them. This is the plan. Jesus Christ has been consistently saying, I have to be crucified and rise again. He has not hidden from them the plan of God. Never. In fact, it hasn't been hidden from his birth. We knew why he came at the narrative of his birth. John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Every Israelite knew what that meant. We know what we do with lambs to take care of sin. We slit their throats and bleed their blood out. And then we open them up and we offer them up as a burnt sacrifice. There was no mistake of what a lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world meant. That was what was prophesied. The arm of the Lord, the plan of God, had been revealed to them. So to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Everyone. Who believed the report? No one. <laughs> because they could not associate glory with suffering. And I know I'm taking you back two weeks and trying to bring that in, but um, I, I just can't preach three-hour sermons because you won't sit that long. And we could have gotten through all of this, and it would have made a lot more sense connecting the dots instead of taking three weeks to do it. 
So I know it's, it's been 15 days and we're struggling to keep up a little bit. Um, that's why um, it's easier for me to prepare messages than for you to hear them. Because I prepare three or four messages at once because it's a unit to me. And, and, but you only get them one at a time and to you it's three sermons. To me it's really just one or five sermons. Sometimes it's eight sermons and it's just one unit to me. I have to prepare them together. Because this is connected to that. Because this is a narrative. This is, this is how it goes. And so the suffering could not be associated with exaltation. And so that's why the people could not, and it literally says that in John, they could not believe because they could not grasp the report that exaltation is suffering. And suffering can be exaltation. That, they couldn't connect those dots. Who believes this report? He is extolled. He is exalted. He is very high. But we can't stand to look at him because it's so gross. He is ripped to shreds, naked on a cross, with criminals being spat upon and abused. That's glory? We still don't believe it today, really. Which maybe is why our churches are so powerless. And have so little glory in them. Just an observation. Who has believed our report? Who believes it? We go out with a gospel message. Who believes it? Yet the arm of the Lord has been revealed to them. It has been shown them, but they don't believe it. And that's the whole context of last week's sermon where they had the voice, they had the law, they had Christ himself, they had the signs, and they still did not believe. But God had a plan. He showed the plan to them. He told them the plan, and he has told it from day one of sin all the way back to Genesis, and he has consistently said all the way through, there were going to have to be one prophet who's going to come and die for all people. Even their own leadership, remember, prophesied that without even knowing he had prophesied it. You know, expedient for one man to die for everyone. So the plan has been revealed. We know what the will of God is. And the fascinating thing is we sit on the cusp of a similar scenario. Because God not only revealed what his plan was for the first coming of Jesus Christ, he has also carefully revealed (laughs) what it will be like at his second coming. But again, we have the same dilemma. The arm of the Lord is the work of God. The work of God has been revealed. Here's his plan. Here's what he intends to do. Who believes it? I mean, really believes it. The answer here really is no one. So John takes us a little farther. So I wanted you to see that connection. He has pulled out a verse in the middle of a context that we've already been introduced to the early context of that verse by Jesus' words, the Son of Man be lifted up, and the idea of glory with that suffering for the nations, for all people. It's all there in Isaiah 52, um, which, by the way, was not Isaiah 52 back then because there were not chapters and verses in this time. Okay, so it was just a continuous letter, a book. So 
Um, all the chapters and verses were added, so if anyone gets all excited about chapters and verses, that's only something in recent times. So we go back to John, and we say, okay. So now we got that, and so we come to verse 39, and it says, therefore, they could not believe because Isaiah said again. And again, we might say, well, that kicks them off the hook. It was, and we look at that word, could not believe, and we say, well, that's incapacity, and the, the Calvinists are right, and so no one can believe unless God makes them believe, and that is not the nature of what is just being spoken. It is rather that the question isn't being responded to. They couldn't believe in Jesus because they couldn't believe the report. What was the report? That the arm of the Lord said exaltation will be through suffering. Because they couldn't believe that, they couldn't believe Jesus. It is not that they couldn't believe in Jesus because God hadn't put it in their mind or in their heart to believe. He hadn't given them faith. They had all the faith they needed. They had all the revelation they needed. But because they could not believe the first thing, they could not go to the second thing. Could not. Because what was necessary first to really believe in the nature of the work of God is understand that exaltation and suffering go together. But we have associated very high exaltation with comfort. If I'm exalted, then I get my way. If I'm exalted, then I have all my needs met. If I'm exalted, then, then me, 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 right? If I'm exalted, I'm rich, and then I, I don't have to worry. If I'm exalted, no. That's, that, that's wrong. And if you can't get over that, you can't really believe in Jesus Christ. Because he failed. He failed at the triumphal entry. So because they could not believe his message, the report about the arm of the Lord. Here is God's work in Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, angels, the voice, everything just keeps repeating, 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 repeating. This is the arm of the Lord. That is, this is what he's going to do. But because you cannot connect those two, that glory and suffering are the same, and that's what they just asked. How can it be? The law says you're going to remain forever. That's the only part we want to hear. We don't want to see the other thing. It's hard and, and it, it's painful and we don't like that. So we're going to shun that part of your word and we're only going to focus on the, on the, feast, the things that make us feel good. And that describes most sermons today in most churches. Not only in this land, but throughout the earth. Because if we don't give you what you want to hear, you won't come back. That's the pressure that's on pastors today. I'm convinced many of them know the truth and are afraid to preach it because they're afraid their church will be empty the next Sunday. Because they won't believe the report. Who will believe the report? So, they could not believe in Jesus because they could not believe Isaiah's statement that exaltation goes with suffering. And here Jesus is being exalted, Hosanna, 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel, exaltation. And Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be lifted up. What? No! Who are you? You're not the Christ. They couldn't believe in him because they didn't believe the report. But I would contend with you, they had the capacity to believe the report, but they chose not to. And as soon as you don't believe this part, you can't believe that part. If you don't accept part A, the foundation, you cannot accept part B, the structure. You can't do it. So this is not an incapacity to have faith. This is the fact that because they didn't believe the prior report of Isaiah 52 verses... What are those three verses there at the end of 52? Um, that they couldn't believe in the Christ. They turned their eyes away from him because they couldn't associate exaltation with this marred image on the cross. Now we come to verse 39. Therefore they, I'm sorry, verse 40. Um, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. These things Isaiah spoke when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So let's go to Isaiah chapter 6. This is out of um, the introduction of Isaiah to his responsibilities before God. When he saw heaven, he saw uh, God in his glory. This is the holy, holy, holy chapter where we get that phrase. We get introduced to the activity of seraphim. And so we have um, uh, the voice saying in verse 8, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And if you want to know who the us is, who has believed our report, it isn't Isaiah's report and, you know, a mouse in his pocket. It is the report of God, the Father, Son, the Spirit. It's not just a plural majesty. This is the, the, the triune God. And so, who will go for us? Then I said, in verse, I'm in verse 8 of chapter 6 of Isaiah, um, here am I, send me. You know, God's got a message to take to everybody. Me, me, take me, take me, take me, I'll do it. He hasn't heard what the message is. He just knows God needs a man and I want to be that man. And so God says, okay, go, verse 9, and tell this people, keep on hearing but do not understand. Keep on seeing but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return and be healed. I want to read this again out of the Greek translation of the Bible. Um, this is an English translation of the Greek instead of an English translation of the Hebrew. Okay? Um, the Greek texts we have are much older uh, than the Hebrew, and the Hebrew was, was put together by a group of people that didn't believe in Jesus. Okay? And we need to understand. So the, this is the same thing. This is out of the, this is the Orthodox Greek Bible in English. And I want you to listen carefully. i got to find it here because uh, it's not set apart this way. Yeah, here we go. 
Go and tell this people, you shall hear indeed, but not understand. You shall see indeed, but not perceive. We have keep on and keep on. But you're going to be revealed. You shall hear. For the heart of this people has become insensitive, and their ears hear with difficulty. They have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I should heal them. And then Isaiah's question is, how long? Is this going to go on? You might say, well, why? It seems like there's a little bit of difference. A little bit of difference is... One is God being the cause, and the Greek, it is very obvious that the people were the cause. God's going to send a messenger, and the messenger says, I have to go to a people who refuse to understand. All right, the podcast people would be dismayed if I ended my sermon with that word. They were hearing and hearing and hearing. God sends this messenger, but they wouldn't listen. They wouldn't listen. It wasn't so that, so that they wouldn't listen. It was to emphatically demonstrate their unwillingness to hear the revelation of the arm of the Lord. And so he has already repeated, there's already been other uh, scriptures, there's already been other prophets, but Isaiah you're going to go, you're going to go to keep the pressure on them. They haven't believed so far. You're going to go and you're going to keep preaching to them. You're going to keep revealing them so that it isn't my fault when they don't believe. Their ears are heavy by their own choice. Their hearts are cold by their own decisions. They are going to hear the truth with their ears and they're going to understand with the, the but they're not going to want to receive it. So it's not that God says, I'm going to send you so that they don't believe. He's saying, because they don't believe, I'm going to send you, and they're going to continue in their unbelief, and that will be their judgment. Israel's rejection was well in place before they cried out, crucify him. Israel's rejection as a nation, as a leadership, as, as, a, as a people of God, and we're not talking about individuals here, we're talking about national identity, has been rejecting him. They killed John the Baptist. Please recognize that. That was a messenger. That was the Elijah to come. That was the one who made straight the paths of the Lord. That was the one who declared, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And you killed him like you did all the other prophets. You did them what you pleased, Jesus says to them. They have already been in this condition. They shut their own eyes. They stopped their own ears. But God says, I'm still going to keep sending you to report to them to reveal to them the plan of God. Why? So that as they reject him, they cannot say, we didn't know. They are more 
responsible. We're going to look at that a lot more next week. And so we come to this, and it is not that Israel could not believe because God did not give them faith, but rather Israel could not believe because they could not believe the prior report, and therefore if you don't believe A, you cannot believe B built on A, uh, and because you won't believe this, I'm sorry, you won't believe A, you can't believe B, but I'm going to keep preaching to you both A and B. But because you're not receiving A, God already knows what's going on. The end result of not accepting A, that suffering and glory are together, means that you cannot believe. And so when they correct Jesus and say, but the law says the Christ will stay forever. So who are you? You must not be the Christ because you just said you're going to be crucified. Because of those words, we know that they didn't believe that glory and suffering were meant to be together for redemption. Then they could not believe in Jesus because they were looking for a different Messiah. When we redefine these concepts and we go to the world with a different God and a different plan um, because we're only giving them a slice of the truth and not the full gospel message. Oh, God loves you. and Don't you want to go to heaven? Yeah, that sounds great. Okay. Um, you're going to have to suffer. Oh, I don't think so. So we leave that part out because we know, <laughs> here we go, you know they don't believe it. They won't believe it. You want me to surrender to God? You want me to humble myself to God? So we skip that part. Oh, God loves you. Don't you all want to go to heaven? Don't you want to be friends of God? Yes, pray the sinner's prayer. Oh, hallelujah, you're saved. We have skipped step A because we know they won't believe it. And what we fail, though, is to recognize that they can't believe B. Step B is to believe in Jesus. And they can't do it because we aren't preaching the report that we know they don't, won't believe. Who will believe our report? So I'm going to send you out there, and, and it's not that your preaching is going to make the people unbelieving, but rather because of their unbelieving nature, you're going to keep preaching, and they can't respond because they won't accept the prior because they won't do that they can't do that and you're going to preach both and so in this milieu the necessity of their rejection was clear but the responsibility of their rejection is clearly on themselves because they should have seen but they couldn't see it and they couldn't see Jesus as their redeemer because they wouldn't receive him as a suffering servant being exalted. They couldn't put those two together. And so, because they wouldn't put those two together, they couldn't believe in him. So do not interject here a Calvinist model that says that you have to, God has to give you faith, and they will use this passage in that nature, and it is wrong. And the proof of the wrongness of it is in verse 42. 
I don't know why they don't read the whole text. Verse 42, nevertheless, isn't that great? Hallelujah for nevertheless. <laughs> Even among the rulers, many believed in him. Wow. So individuals in the midst of this milieu of a society that won't associate exaltation with suffering, um, which um, I'm not just, I, I don't want to just pick on one generation. We can pick on the millennials that they don't associate. Um, one of the powerful times of the gospel was right after World War. Uh, and I know World War One, World War Two, but it was really one World War, just a continuation and finish of the job. Um, because we began to understand that suffering was necessary and we valued sacrifice. We valued the necessity of sacrifice for the exaltation. And we and that and after that, when that principle was ingrained in us, unfortunately, through the travesty of war, um, the gospel had a powerful explosion. And that was when missions really took off after World War II. That's when we were sending missionaries all over the earth coming out of this country. It was in those 50s, 40s, 50s. And in the 60s, it was just an explosion of the gospel out of this because we valued, we exalted sacrifice. By the time my generation got a good firm grasp on the power thing, that was lost. We spat on Vietnam vets when they came home. We didn't value sacrifice anymore, and we were a self-centered generation. So it wasn't just the millennials today. They are the, the third level of, of devaluation of sacrifice. And now the idea of sacrifice, the concept of it is just foreign to them, completely foreign. So Christ's personal sacrifice, people believed in it. Individuals did. And so we know that, there, that the faith and the will of, of the individual is still intact. The authority to direct that where you will, where you choose, is still intact because there's a little word called nevertheless. Here's the plan of God. The plan of God is I'm going to send my son. He's going to die on the cross, be rejected by Israel. And the gospel will go out to all nations. That's the arm of the Lord. It has been revealed to us. We know his plan. He is implementing the plan. Jesus Christ says, this is the hour. The plan is in place. It is going just according to the, the prophecies. It is to fulfill all the prophecies, not just the little ones you like, but all of them. And we are on the cusp of it being completed on earth at the resurrection. And ascension as, uh, as well. And so, and yet, in the midst of this, individuals still have a choice. What are you going to do? We, and so, the nature of the prophecy wasn't about the individual's faith. It was about the nation's spiritual state. And it says, even many of the rulers believed. Wow. Remember, we saw that... Uh, was it last several? I don't know when it was. We talked in the earlier in this chapter where it says that they left following the rulers to go after Christ. It's in this chapter. Um, 
of the triumphal entry. Uh, help me out, guys. Verse 19 was the Pharisees say everyone's going after it because even the awesome of our followers, um, even among them, that there were some. Well, now not only it's their disciples that are going after Jesus, but now it's some of their own peers going after Jesus. So, yes, they still had the capacity to believe. They still had the capacity to direct their faith. They still had faith as a gift of God to all men. You can't earn it. You didn't deserve it. And God has graced every man with faith. You must choose where to direct that faith. And some, in fact, it says many of the rulers did believe in him. But, so now we have a nevertheless to a negative that seems like no one can believe, which is a misuse of the passage. Um, and then we have, well, nevertheless, many did believe, um, but that's not the end of it. If you go to chapter 12, sadly, there's another but. So when you get to the second negative, all right, so you know the but means here's the exception. Here's, here's the negative of it. So we had, we started off with a negative. The negative is they're not going to believe the report, right? They don't believe in Jesus. Nevertheless, many, even among the rulers, did believe. So that's a positive. But now we have another word, but, which means we're going flipping back to the negative. But they were afraid of their peers and would not testify of Jesus Christ. They would not stand. They would not contradict. It says they did not confess him lest they should be put out of the synagogue for they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. They believed in him. They broke through and they believed A. <laughs> they believed the suffering servant was the, exalt, the, the, the mechanism of exaltation and it would be the salvation of all men. They believed, but they couldn't confess him publicly because they were afraid. They didn't want to be put out of the synagogue. They were still zealous to keep the law. They didn't want to lose their position. They didn't want to lose the respect of what they had. And so they did not confess him. They wanted the praise of men um, instead of the praise of God. And these are people who did believe A and therefore could believe B and did believe B. Does that equal a victorious Christian life? Well, it gets you in the door, but it's not a victorious Christian life. You're kind of the coward in the back pushing everyone forward. I'll stay back here and watch the grain. You go out there and fight the battle, and I'll have something ready for you when you get back. Don't tell anybody I'm here. What kind of soldier is that? They would not influence those around them because they had fear and they were selfishly motivated. That's going to change. All right? The, the, the Gospels are followed by the book of Acts. So we know that wonderful things are going to transpire in their life. 
But at this point, because the arm of the Lord has been revealed, Christ has to be crucified, this was necessary. And it was, God didn't cloak it. He didn't prevent them from understanding. He didn't close their eyes. They closed their eyes. And so God isn't responsible. He didn't cause this. And yet it was required of his plan. He didn't put these subliminal messages into his brain, into the people's collective psyche, so that they would yell out, crucify him. Each one made a choice for themselves whether they would run away from Jesus at his arrest, which were his disciples, or whether they would cower off in the corner during the trial, which are the rulers that didn't want to upset the apple cart, who believed, but didn't want to say anything, and so they let Christ be crucified, even if they didn't yell out, crucify him. And they permitted the mob to function as an unbelieving unit representing them as a people. But, now I got another but. You ready? So we were negative, nevertheless positive, but negative. Now I have one other thing. Not in the text. Because we'd have to go way forward in the Bible. <laughs> we get to Romans 10. And people can believe. But what does it require? The same exact thing as Isaiah. Romans 10 closes the cycle. It says, how can they believe something they haven't heard? How can they hear unless someone goes to them? How can someone go to them unless they are sent? Do you remember Isaiah? Who will go for me? I got goosebumps, okay? <laughs> Who will go for me? I'll go. And then we have the cycle. Oh, man, I got to go to people that don't want to hear it. Uh, but I still have to go and do it. I can't be afraid. I have to get out there. But the arm of the Lord is for the suffering servant, and these people have to reject the necessity of the rejection, but they still need to hear the message because they're responsible for their own choices. And and then we, we go through, and some believe, but then we come to the, the end of the end, and we're right back in that cycle, and it says, who's going to go? Because they can't believe if they never heard. And again, they, it's not that they can't believe because they don't have faith or that God hasn't granted them some divine work so they can receive the message. The inhibiting factor is no one will go and tell them. And so these guys, the but they were afraid and they desired the praise of men more than the praise of God, were inhibiting the gospel in that period of that week. And they're responsible for that. They weren't an alternative voice saying, don't crucify him. He's the son of God. Are you crazy? They kept silent. And I said, well, that was in the plan of God. Yes, but that was their choice to keep silent. Who's believed our report? But we are in a time now when that we, we have the perfect love of God accomplished in us that should cast out fear, and we should be responsive to Romans 10, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good tidings, 
of the gospel. Who will go for us? We know from the end times that it's not going to be much different before Christ's second coming than his first. People are going to not want to hear it because they're not going to want to hear the fact that they are sinners and that there needs to be there needed to be a sacrifice for their sin. But this is the day of salvation. And they can believe, but they have to hear it. How can they hear if we don't go? We need to be motivated to be the Isaiahs in the presence of God this morning and say, I'll go. Me, 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 me. I'll do it. Count on me. I'm the guy. Oh, that's a hard work. Exaltation and suffering. Being hated, despised, rejected of men go together. You want to be exalted in the presence of God one day? Learn to be the servant of all, like your Savior. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for the power of your sacrifice that brought so much glory to your name. And Lord, help us to understand the complexity of your plan. And we have seen men muddy it to try to make it more acceptable and palatable to our feeble mental capacities. Lord, help us to have a higher view, to recognize you have a wondrous plan and we cannot wait till it's fully executed and we are in your presence. But Lord, we also know that you are asking who will go to reveal your work to men, whether they accept it or reject it, with the likelihood they will reject. Lord, give us a passion to declare your truth to men, regardless, and perhaps particularly when they don't want to hear it. That some might believe. Lord, we do not want the praise of men. We want your praise. We want your accolades. We want your exaltation. We thank you for the privilege of being on this side of the glory of the resurrection. Lord, our prayer is that we might be stewards of your gospel, seeking your praise. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.